Youth ministry can always use some big ideas. Ideas that are faithful to relational ministry, but also provide some crazy, fun, and life-giving resources for youth leaders, youth in leadership, and the church. Now that's religion. This is the Big Ideas in Youth Ministry Podcast. Your source for information, discussion, and feedback in youth ministry of all shapes and sizes. Now, here are your hosts, Michelle Thomas-Bush and Cliff Haddocks. From the largest cathedrals to the smallest chapels, this is Big Ideas in Youth Ministry, where we are looking for ways to connect those who are trying to serve faithfully in their youth communities uh, throughout the world through this podcast. I am Cliff Haddocks, also known as Revan Geek, and I'm joined, as I always am, by Michelle Thomas-Bush. Michelle, good to talk to you. Good to talk to you, Cliff. And we have with us today, we have with us from Luther Seminary, Andrew Root. Andrew, who has a number of ways, he has applied practical theology, a number of books, but he's here today to talk specifically about the idea of, dun-dun-dun, hold on to your hats, kids, the end of youth ministry. <laughs> There's, If we just put that across the title for the podcast, I know everyone's going to freak out, and I love that. So, so well, Andrew, very wonderful to have you here. For- it's very appropriate for a new COVID world that we live in. And I know this was written pre-COVID. Yeah. Um, so. It, 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 uh, it was written pre-COVID, but it came out right when COVID hit. So like at the end of March, 2020. So I felt like I was incredibly prophetic and, <laughs> and Cliff with your incredible radio voice. Yes. You read it, you read it perfectly too, with the question mark at the end. <laughs> Right. That was that was my contribution. Actually, was oh, you know, okay. the publisher came up with the title, and I said, "Well, let's put a question mark at the end." And it was really about self preservation, so no one could be mad at me. You know, so <laughs> You're we, just we asking get a the clickbait title and You're avoid just conflict. asking a question. You're just yeah, asking that's, a question. That's, that's so right. you came out right at the beginning of COVID. So it's like you and Disney Plus arriving at just the right time. <laughs> and that's but, exactly right. Andy wrote Disney Plus exactly right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Um, so. What are the things that kind of maybe surprised you about what made this book so much more prophetic moving into a a COVID and now still COVID, maybe not lockdown, but still a COVID era? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the one of the reasons, I mean, the, it's a little, it is totally like a clickbait title in the sense that, you know, like at the end, I start saying youth ministry is about a lot of different things. And there's a, there's a life for youth ministry going forward. So there is the danger that it's a little bit of a scare tactic to get you into the book and that we really get, I hope, pretty constructive towards, towards the end of the book. But one of the things that was surprising is I never imagined that actually quite literally youth ministry could end, which did happen for a lot of Protestant churches, you know, and, and, 2020 of, of March, where, you know, a lot of other forms of, of church life could continue in, in weird ways, you know, you could stream your service, and maybe you could do Bible study, but it was really hard. I think nearly impossible in my conversations with folks to like keep the classic youth group going over zoom. And really the book, the, the end of youth ministry, really where that's centered on is thinking of the way particularly like post-World War II youth ministry into the 80s and 90s. And that ghost that kind of lived on even into the first two decades of the 21st century really did have this assumption that youth ministry equaled the youth group. And what youth mm-hmm. ministry was, mm-hmm. was a youth group. And, you know, the the, the disgruntled people in, in congregations often are, will say to the, to the youth director, to the youth pastor, like, hey, what happened? Like when my kids were 
in high school, we had 40, 40 kids in the basement. Mm-hmm. Now you have 17. What's going, what's, what's wrong with you? And so it was really trying to get a handle on that issue ultimately. Well, now in this COVID era, like Cliff called it, that's, um, I'm getting emails every day from pastors who are saying, can you work with this young youth pastor who, you know, our youth group has dwindled from 20 to three, or our youth group is non-existent anymore. So in many ways, it it has um, really changed the way youth ministry happens, uh, COVID has, and, and youth directors are struggling. And so I think we need to come back to what, what's important in what we do. You know, youth group doesn't have to be the same. It doesn't have to look the same. Um, and that, that's a struggle for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things you say is that narrative is a key uh, for Mm -hmm. youth ministry, the narrative. And tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, I mean, and that really does rest in thinking of why the youth group maybe can't be what the youth group used to be. So there's like no shade thrown on the past. Like there was a time where youth ministry, Protestant youth ministry, I think we should probably say, was kind of the youth group. And that served a, an important cultural purpose, I think, and and had an important place to play within that. But those days are kind of over. And, you know, this this book is really in some ways about, and I almost have to apologize for this, but it's really about middle-class parenting mm-hmm. in, in many ways. Mm-hmm. And like the kind of cultural realities and then a theological response to the cultural realities of middle-class parenting. And I have to apologize for it because, we really do need to take steps to not be kind of captured by middle-class forms. But I think Mm -hmm. we do have to admit that Protestant youth ministry has mainly been a middle-class phenomenon for some. We've catered to the middle class. Absolutely. And, you know, like just the infrastructure that's been built around Protestant youth ministry has been tended to be funded um, from congregations um, or just the kind of ethos has been set by, you know, people that have enough money to be able to hire a youth director mm-hmm. or to have a youth group or to go on a bunch of mission trips and things like that. And that's not all bad. I don't want to, I don't want to paint that as all bad, but it, it does mean there's been this kind of unique linking of kind of middle-class American middle-class phenomenons with youth ministry that does get kind of globalized across the world. So you can be in South Africa and all of a sudden people are talking about the same kind of youth ministry models that we, you know, that were created in Southern California in the 1970s or something, you know, it's, it's a weird kind of phenomenon that way. So I wanted to get at that and particularly look if we can't kind of culturally critique a little bit, or just kind of culturally get underneath the kind of drives of middle-class parents. And if that doesn't expose why youth group just doesn't serve the same purpose. And one of the examples I use is like to kind of think of uh, stranger things, that Netflix TV show, mm. from, you know, it's a period piece, you know, yeah. contemporary show, but you know, period piece of 1983. And it's one of the other tragedies of the uh, pandemic that it pushed back. It's, it's a shooting schedule. So we're not getting the new season until I think this summer or Halloween next year. Okay. Andrew, the fact, Andrew, the fact that you're telling me that you feel the delay of stranger things is a tragedy says you're my people. Just so you know, (laughs) (laughs) you're my people. Yeah. And probably some of your other listeners are rolling their eyes. thinking We're nuts, but we're on the same. I think youth ministry people 
have to love Stranger Things. It's just you, a requirement. You have to. Yeah. But one of the, you know, in season one or season one and two, one of the funniest bits of that, I mean, there are a lot of funny bits and there are a lot of great bits, but is Mrs. Wheeler, who is Mikey's mom, who's yeah. like the perfect 1980s parent who knows nothing that's going on in her kids' lives, yeah. provided a nice safe home in a basement where they can play Dungeons and Dragons and like, you know, do whatever they want. There's a hot meal every night. But for the most part, kids are there's a kind of permissiveness to parenting that really was a good kind of parenting that you, in the, especially in the suburbs, give your kids space to roam. And really, that 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 show could not be based in 2015. There's just mm-hmm. no way it could be based in 2015 with fighting the demigorgs from an evil corporation who's opened up the upside down mm-hmm. because Mikey wouldn't have any time to fight demigorgs. Yes, exactly. <laughs> he would have traveling baseball and yeah. his mom would be following him on, on his phone. And so there's this huge, I think, switch in parenting style where we're at the heyday of the youth group there really was a more permissive parenting style with free space. And for all intents and purposes, kids didn't have a lot to do. You could go to almost every American town and they were gathered in parking lots, just doing stupid stuff and talking about drinking or whatever. And the youth group had an incredible purpose there because the youth group could come in and say, you know, if you're just going to hang out, why don't you just come hang out with us? And we're going to do some, you know, we're going to do some things here and you don't have to worry about drinking and having sex. Let's just, let's just have fun. And so the youth pastor even became, essentially a, a grown-up, barely grown-up um, big kid who could convince them to come and gather. But that's just not the drives of, of middle-class parenting now. And now the drives of middle-class parenting is, is not a permissive one, but a very attentive one, it's, where you schedule your kids' lives, where you, you take them to all sorts of activities, where you're really managing a very complicated schedule. And in that kind of world, the youth group just does not hold the same kind of gravitas that it once did i mean i think a lot of middle class parents depends on where you live in the country would like their kids to be part of a youth group but is it more important than volleyball is it more Mm. important than Mm -hmm. piano is it more important than you know driver's ed at the time it is usually not and i think often the danger with with youth ministry people and what burns them out is they think okay we got to make our youth group as kind mm-hmm. of potent and have enough gravitas that it can, can be with swimming or football or, or uh, drama. And the point of the book is you're never, you're never going to do that. Yeah, yeah. That's never going to happen. So we okay, have to me, switch. Let me ask you this. So yep. uh, generation alpha, you know, enters youth group next fall. Do you yeah. think they're going to be a little bit slower and their parents are going to be a little bit more permissive because of COVID or do you mm. think they're going to be ramped up a little bit more because they missed something? Yeah, that's a, it's a really good question. I'm I'm actually not sure. I mean, it will be interesting for for us to figure that out all, all out. Watch it happen. Right. In my my sense of you know, I it's always dangerous to relate this to your own children. So I have a 17 year old and a 14 year old, um, and so they're you know good classic generation Z Z kids in many ways, but. Um, I, I don't know. I, I feel like even with my own kids in recognizing this, the amount of kind of oversight we have on our son's life is pretty staggering. And what I mean by that is bodily. Like we know where this boy is all the time. He's up in his room on his computer playing Minecraft. What mm-hmm. he's doing in those digital spaces, I have no idea. And he has know-how and those like in these technological realms, I have no idea about. And so he could be in all sorts of worlds, but where he is, um, what he's doing with his time. And we don't feel like we have any time, even Mm -hmm. kind of coming out of COVID. We don't feel like we have any time for anything else in our lives. 
and compared to people we know we we're not doing much like none of my kids are in traveling basketball leagues or anything like that and yet we just feel like how do you get homework done and you know act tutoring you're in yeah Yeah. how do you get all this how do you get all this done so i don't know i mean it, it could really change um but there seems to be a huge investment on being a good parent means really mm-hmm. managing your kid's schedule. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the other thing that, that that's connected to this, and you asked about narrative, so we're far away from that mm-hmm. now, yeah, I apologize. Okay. But is that there is a kind of sense that what's important for your kid is that, that they find their thing. And mm-hmm. their thing usually is this kind of activity. Um, and we think that because I think the highest kind of goods for middle-class parents is this kind of sense of your kid being able to answer this question, who am I? And have a kind of sense of their identity. And there's a, there's a fear that if your kid can't figure out who they are and can't be affirmed for their identity, they can never be happy. And what you really want for your child is your child to, to be happy. And so my basic point is if that's the kind of driving, the driving force underneath this, it'll be so hard for the youth group and even church participation to compete against this. And so if we're trying to compete for people's time, it'll be very, very difficult to the point of really frustrating. But there is a, but if we're really talking about transformation and we're talking about kind of formation, the interesting thing is that I think even activity, your activities, your things that you're involved in don't have the kind of transformational power that narrative and story does. Mm-hmm. That narrative and story is really how we build our identities. I mean, I think there's a kind of slippage where most middle-class parents feel like, well, if our kid doesn't know who he is because he doesn't play hockey or he doesn't figure out his sport or he doesn't figure out his his instrument or he doesn't figure out what he's really good at, then they'll never know who they are. But the truth of the matter is, is that the way we build our identities and answer the questions, who 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 am I, is really through story and narrative. You need some kind of story. And while the church may be in decline or some of its potency to draw people or to compete within the thing, you know, um, in our communities, the church still remains a place with deep, rich narratives that are both intergenerational as well as historical. And I think youth ministry needs to focus more on story than trying to compete for the thing. What, what, what would be a baby step in that for, for someone who, for, for a youth leader out right now, yeah. who's listening to this right now, who is panicking <laughs> at the concept of taking all that they have known and having to adapt as we've all had to adapt into a lot of changes in recent months. What is a baby step in doing that? Yeah. So there's two baby steps and one would be, one would be kind of productive and the other would be like a holy way of denial. And <laughs> one of the holy ways of denial is to not give into the temptation that more means better. And so, you know, especially, you know, coming out of COVID or in this kind of COVID transition, thinking of we need to make up for lost time, we need to do more. Um, we're we're going to lose everyone if I don't give max effort all the time. I, I is the key there too. Yes, absolutely. I um, and I need to bear that burden. And I I do think we need to to, to kind of deny that and think that whatever is going to come next. We have to be attentive to the presence of God. We have to be attentive mm-hmm. to each other's humanity and listen for that. So, so that's the kind of denial small step, which maybe not a small step, but maybe a direct thing you can do. But the positive thing is, I think 
a, a key is to start to be really interested in stories. And what I mean by that is interested in the stories within your congregation and maybe in your community too, but be interested in hearing those. Like, uh, you know, like you hear the 75 year old woman at the coffee hour say something interesting. That's just a kind of throwaway line, but it gives you this sense that there's a deep story there. What would it mean, then mean to follow that story? And yeah, okay, Andy, I have a question because we have um, a Sunday school class that's just based on storytelling. You know, we'll bring in a speaker and tell a story and take some questions and then they go on. And pre-COVID, we thought, oh, you know, I wish they would do a little bit more faith formation. And so, you know, I wish there was something a little bit more and occasionally they would have a great speaker that uh, you know, Olympic champion that they all the youth would want to speak to, or, you know, this quarterback that's famous and everybody wants to see. And so, you know, whatever we're doing that day gets thrown out the window. Um, but it was so hard because I think they heard the story and then they didn't, there was no time to reflect on it. Yeah. And so it is more than just the narrative. It has to be tied to how does this narrative fit in God's story and how Absolutely. does it fit in your story? Yeah. Yeah. And so, that, I mean, I think that can happen in, in the way you kind of set up those stories and the prompts for those. Like, I, I think, you know, if, if if you do confirmation in your church or, or some kind of kind of, you know, significant catechesis moment or Christian education moment to, to bring in people in your church and have them talk about a biblical text that got them through a dark period in their life. Um, mm. Or, you know, a, 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 bi a biblical text, I don't mean this is probably too dramatic, but like a biblical text I would have died without or a mm. story that saved me or something like that. To tell that story becomes very, very different. Um, well, and also we have the we have third grade Bible still. And so we have a youth who uh, goes and speaks to the third grade Bible. And if if they shared something very similar, you know, instead yeah. of just, you know, here's my Bible and I like to read it and. My grandmother gave it to me, but if they really shared that, you know, uh, it's been hard for me this year and here's my favorite story that's really helped me. Yeah. yeah. That third grader is going to remember it forever. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I, I think that's a big, a big piece of it, but you're also right that there needs to be space to actually turn to the group in some way and ask, well, what does this mean? Mm -hmm. what's really at stake here. And I think the kind of stories that, that changes, I mean, we're talking about how stories kind of formulate our identity or how we answer the question, who am I? That isn't just a consumption of a bunch of stories. I mean, the, the truth of the matter is we're because of all of our streaming services, you know, shout mm -hmm. out to Disney plus again. I mean, we really need, you guys need a sponsorship for Disney plus. Now. <laughs> yeah. That's two shout outs. You should get at least a few months off. There you go. But, you know, we're saturated in stories. They're, they're yeah. everywhere. You know, oh, yeah. so it's it's not but there's almost no time to interpret <clears throat> these stories mm -hmm. to ask, well, what does this mean? What does this actually mean if this if this happened? You know, like I do think that there it has to be done respectfully, but it can be done with high school students, especially to hear like maybe a, around Lent or something to hear people tell stories of where they were dead and found new life or something, mm -hmm. you know, like where God took what was dead in their life and brought new life out of it. And then to have someone share a story from the congregation, you know, 45 year old person or a 95 year old person, and then to allow space, maybe not with that person present, but the space to ask the young people, what do you think? Do you think that? Do you really think that um, Marlene saw Jesus when she was at her husband's deathbed 
and he was dying? Or do you think it was just a lack of sleep and maybe she had a glass of wine and NyQuil at the same time? Like what? what? It doesn't matter. Yeah. yeah. Maybe yeah. doesn't matter. And, 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 what, and depending on how you interpret it, what does it mean for you? What does it do? What does it do for you? What is it? What does it claim about what it means to live our lives and, and, and who we are and what this community is about and, and who God is. Um, and so there, there needs to be this way of interpreting these stories too, I think. Well, and um, Andy, that's really helpful because I think young people are trying to figure out who God is on their own, just mm. in their, the context of their own lives. Yeah. And that's really limiting yeah but that yeah. that might go back to what we were talking about about how the kids are i, I want to be like these kids today but because they have so much available at them that they can search it up or they can research it up or they can type into google tell me about blank and they get a yeah. boilerplate you know non-emotional listing of facts um you know we, we're very mindful of what our daughter searches so we do check her search history what she what she you know and, and you as a panicky father you're like what am i going to find what am I? and yeah. and and the most recent find was how do i convince my parents to buy me a goat and i'm like <laughs> what what in the world is this but still <laughs> And is that work? code for something? That's I don't know. She generally thought we should get a goat. She generally thought that a goat in our backyard would make our lives better. And uh, that's not going to happen. We have enough pets as it is. But right. still, that like that's where she turned to discuss this weird topic. She didn't like go to my wife. She didn't come to me yet. Uh, didn't yeah. go to the grandparents. She went to Google. And yes, Google can tell you facts, but Google can't necessarily give you meaning. It's and, not a yeah, it's not a narrative and, and what you're talking about. And maybe that's part of just having these things at the fingertips, you know, kind of lessens our reliance on storytelling. Because, I mean, I, 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 we'll use an example, Andrew. Th- think back to when we were kids and one of us would be, hey, what was that movie where, you know, the guy was was, was like, who's the baddest? Who's the best? Who, who's the, you know, who's the Shogun of Harlem? And we'd be like, oh, oh, I don't know. What is that movie? What is that movie? And we would spend all day and maybe even go to the video store to find out that, oh, it's The Last Dragon. Yeah. But now you say, hey, what was that movie? Give me a second. Right. I've got the answer. Yeah. And if you don't get an answer that fast, maybe, you know, that's not enough for some. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just yeah. skipping. Pete Holmes, the comedian, has a really funny bit about that, about how like before Google in your pocket, when you didn't know something, you just didn't know. Yeah. And he, and he says it really, you know, really funny and beautifully. He's like, you, and you just felt that longing in that deficit of and, not knowing. Yeah. And you go into the world imagine. and ask other people, yeah. you know, yeah. these questions. And now we just know immediately. And he's like, the, the feeling between knowing and not knowing is so similar that we don't even, you know, that it, it doesn't mean anything. There's no yeah. meaning. He actually mm. says that. It's really quite profound. That's a, that would be an interesting theological thing to look at, the difference between knowing and not knowing. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and how mystery plays into this yeah. the yeah. necessity of not knowing things as a kind of invitation into, into mystery. I mean, Charles Taylor makes the argument that after a scientific re- revolution, when we say, when we say mystery, we think puzzle, you know, like, mm-hmm. like eventually we're going to solve that. 
but like the medieval people when you said mystery these were truths too profound and deep that the human being could never possess them like how bread and wine could become the real presence of jesus christ like that that was not able to be solved these were not riddles you know but we tend to think now in riddles which is why the first place you go is google and the riddle is how do i get my parents to buy me a goat (laughs) yeah yeah. Well, and I tell my confirmation class that, you know, of course, questions are more important than answers. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you have to live into the answer and it might take you years and years and years. And that's the best kind of questions, you yeah. know, uh, the mystery of the question. Right. But that's something that's hard to understand. Yeah. It's, it's still a good life to live in pursuit of answers to big questions and you know i think there there was times especially for people of faith that living with these open questions that were framing your life and were leading you to seek um in the world were an important way to live and and we've kind of lost that now i think or we can easily get distracted from it for sure exactly i want to go back to narrative real quick um do you think that um during COVID we did we partnered with moth um podcast and had them come and do a a workshop for my youth to tell their story. That's cool. Um, And there were some great format. I mean, some great stories uh, beyond things I could imagine. Um, And I really wanted them to, you know, I thought this is going to be great for you Sunday or, you know, um, but it really was just about learning to tell the story. Do you think that's something that in youth ministry we need to be focusing on too, is how do we help them tell their story? Yeah, I think so. I mean, and, and I guess what I think, I, how I think you learn to tell your story is by hearing a lot of stories, you know, and, and I do think that's one of the interesting kind of connections here with, with faith formation, because things like the moth and all sorts of other storytelling um, kind of locales are so important for us to learn how to tell stories, but there'll still be a kind of theological impetus on us to, to make sure that we're we're teaching particularly our young people, but all of our people to, to tell certain kinds of stories. And what I mean by those is those kind of stories that take the shape of Jesus Christ's own life that really are these kind of stories of death to life, of lost to found. And I, I do think that we need to just learn how to tell stories, like how things are at stake and how to kind of move from beginning, middle and end. But I think the stories that really are transformational, that really reflect the depth of the Christian story, are are beautifully often embody the kind of movements of this kind of life to death dynamic that uh, that we see embodied in, in Jesus' own life. And so I do think there's a kind of faith formation dynamic of of how do we help young people hear those stories too. And, and those usually do call for a level of vulnerability in a letter in a level of confession, um, so they can be very sacred in that way. Well, and I think we have to not hesitate telling those stories from our own lives of when we were lost and when we were found, which I think so many times we're so focused on their program and organizing things and details that we forget to tell those stories so that they can hear, you know, the part um, of the narrative that is important while we're here. Yeah. You know, you know, when, when Christ entered our life and found us and, that change or the transformation that happened that is so significant to where we are and who we are today. Um, and that identity that comes out of that. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes those stories need to be in process. You know, like we often think the kind of stories we want our young people to hear are completed stories, you know, like Mm -hmm. things were really bad. Then I found Jesus. Now everything's good. 
but some I, I think often we need to hear stories of people who are still in the dark night of the soul, still wrestling with with God. People who are maybe still connected to our congregations, but are saying, you know, I feel God far, far away from me right now. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I'm still here and but I can't pray right now and I feel quite alone and I feel God is quite distant. Like those kind of stories uh are also really transformational and really important. And I think sometimes we feel like, well, we don't have any stories in our church because well, they're not they're not really very interesting or there's not any like great stories of like I was in a drug cartel and then I found Jesus. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like there's there's just these kind of plotting stories, but the more you get under the surface, the more you have people who have really found God or cried out to God in these deep moments of loss and of need. And, um, you know, I think that becomes quite beautiful. Well, and some of the fixed stories are not, you know, it doesn't always resonate well with young people. They don't need it to be fixed because their lives are so messy right now. And so they need to hear those dark night of the soul where it's, where somebody's just just questioning and uncertain and living in that place of of pain yeah. and surviving it. Yeah. Well, for you know, for so long, the church, whether it's the head pastor, youth pastor, or whatever, was always about the you know the the superhero type image, the cool guy image, the buddy image that never did anything wrong, that always did everything right, that made the right choices, that when they told the sermon, you knew they were going to be the hero in every story they told, right. and and people for a long time thought that that's what we needed to make the program go, um, and would probably be petrified of a, interviewing a young person who said, well, I have a whole lot of questions about faith, and I want to explore them with your youth. And be, what? You want to do what? Okay, uh, move on. Um, but in reality, that's who they're going to identify with. And you know, I've, said, I've said more than once to people, if you come in pretending you know it all, thinking you know it all and trying to use that as a way to bring kids in, they will smell disingenuine a mile away. They will, you know, everything I'm hearing from what you're saying is we got to emphasize what the good is we do with the people that we have and the experience that they're willing to go on as opposed to uh, let's get the programs back and bring the numbers back up because that ship has kind of sailed. (laughs) It is sailed. And, and, you know, ironically, it's, you know, not to be a hater of programs in any way, you know, I think we, we need them in some sense or, or some kind of semblance of them, but really what transforms is not the programs, but the, the kind of the, the content of the relationships, the, the environment of the relationships and the stories that are embedded in those relationships are what really, really changes people. And so, you know, ultimately at its most practical form, you know, my call for youth workers is to, is to think about that. Like what are, what's the temperature of the relationships? What's the, what's the situation of the relationships and how are stories shared and, and, and encouraged to be shared more than, you know, how do we count the numbers? How do we compete with the big non-denominational church across town for, for, uh, you know, hours spent or just uh, relevance overall, you know? Well, thinking about that too, what you just said and um, moving to relational youth ministry, the, the piece that, um, it makes me think about is because we're in the time of recruiting, you know, calling, discerning leaders and beginning to think about who are the, not just who do we want to be in relationship with our young people, mm-hmm. but who's willing to tell their stories. Yeah. You know, 
Um, and, and I've always said the best people to work with youth are the people who, whose lives are a little bit messy and they're not afraid to talk about it. Right. You know, you don't, I don't need a perfect frat boy who's, who's moved into the finance world and has a perfect wife and children. And, you know, I need somebody who's a recovering alcoholic who, you know, is messed up and is just trying to figure out day-to-day life to work with our youth. Um, And so as we're recruiting leaders, you know, I might need both of those people. Right. Um, And, and how do we begin to help them understand how to tell their story? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think a huge piece of, of recruiting, I mean, if we, if we follow this, this kind of through, if what are kind of really the transformational engines for, for young people or really all people is, is really narrative and relationship, then what you're really asking for in your leaders is can they be in relationship with young people? And by that, mm-hmm. can, they in, can they uphold their humanity? Um, are these people easily enmeshed and kind of unhealthy in that? Are, or, you know, are they there for their own interest and needs? Or are they really willing to be there for others? And are they, you know, differentiated enough that they can be kind of both open and closed with young people and, and are a person themselves and can be with and for the personhood of, of young people? And mm-hmm. then, you know, it doesn't matter in some sense, inside the life of the community, and hopefully, you know, the whole community is, is like Paul claiming Christ and him crucified. But if there's a couple of people who are like, you know, I don't believe more than I believe, but I really am interested if there's, if there's, I, I'm really interested in the Bible. I'm really interested in who God is. And I, I kind of want to learn along with these high school kids. And, and sometimes I'm more in doubt than I am in, in, in any kind of sense of insurance. Like, I think those people are amazing mm-hmm. to have us as, as leaders and uh you know um i think that becomes really important but Mm -hmm. yeah how you tell your story but there's also a really interesting kind of dynamic here it's also how you how you don't how you don't confuse your story as just disclosure Mm -hmm. and that's a really that calls for wisdom and maturity but just pure disclosure is not storytelling right you know like a 15 year old kid does not need to hear about how your marriage is going bad because, you know, your partner and your sex life is now everything you want it to be. Right. Like, no one, you know, I, yeah. as the, you know, as a fellow leader in the ministry, I don't really need to hear that. And you know, maybe, <laughs> maybe there would come a time where we could actually share that, but not like, you know, 15 minutes after meeting you. So yeah. there's, there's a very, there's a huge difference between, you know, kind of vulnerability and storytelling and just disclosure mm-hmm. and information, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and learning the wisdom of that, I think is a huge piece. And, you know, I think that's one of the things I would look for in recruiting other kind of adults to be involved is do they have a, enough maturity to understand the difference between storytelling and just disclosure? And, yeah. And showing, you know, doing it for the show of it yeah. or, yeah. or empathy. Sometimes you do it for, you know, I need you to take care of me. And that yes. goes back to the upholding your human, your own humanity. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's important. Yeah. I, I have one question. Um, because you talk about uh, the end of youth ministry being a book for parents. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder if, um, because I, I do, I'm an associate for youth uh, and their families. Um, is there a role in youth ministry for doing um, some programs with parents today? You know, is there something that we need to be looking at um, because, and here I come back to, because, Cliff and I, you know, are, 
we're big ideas. We're trying to find, yeah. we work in the church and there are people who, who need to be working to um, providing things for the church. So is there something we need to be providing for parents to help them be faithful in their uh, role in guiding their children? Yeah, I think absolutely. And I, and I almost would encourage people in the most kind of practical way to almost be thinking more about kind of gathered program spaces for parents more than kids. I mean, that seems almost sacrilegious and you have to be careful on what, you know, your the people who oversee you, your personnel committee and things like that. Think about that. But I, I do think that there's a real importance of trying. I mean, it's the same struggle with kids, however, maybe even more so of, of gathering them of when they have time. I mean, they, they, parents don't feel like they have any time, but I do think we have to, to be more direct in how mm-hmm. we reach out to parents and particularly provide them space to, to narrate their experience. I mean, I guess Cliff, it goes back to your daughter asking, how do I convince my parents to get a goat? Um, I would guess if you went through a lot of parents search histories, there would be all sorts of questions like, (laughs) how do I get my kid to not, you know, be so stressed out? How do I get my kid to not be so depressed? How, How do I, how do I help my kid deal with disappointment? And we want, we all want this kind of technical knowledge in these eight quick steps to do that. And I understand why we do. I mean, I have two kids and I, you know, you, you, you feel the anxiety of that. But the thing that's most important is you need people to journey with you in this. The connectedness. That deep form of connectedness, people that can hear that you, you, again, a, a kind of sense of hearing story becomes really important. And, you know, the church is one of the last kind of collectives we have within our society that is kind of by de facto intergenerational so where mm-hmm. you can hear other adults who are long past the time of having middle school or high school kids tell stories about their own kids middle school and high school years but when you're in the middle of it everything feels like crisis after crisis after crisis mm-hmm. but that people who have a long-term a long-term view of this and you know their kids are now in their 40s and they're like oh yeah i remember i remember when billy you know, thought this, or I remember when Billy, you know, said he wasn't going to go to college, or I remember when the grades were so awful and he never handed anything in. I mean, that's an incredible ministry. When, mm-hmm. when you're a parent and you're like, why is my kid like this? And why is my kid driving me nuts? And then to find out that there are others who have lived through this or are living right. through it is a really incredible ministry. But then the other piece that's just more directly in faith formation is I do think, and particularly coming out of the pandemic, because this all got thrown up in the air. I mean, the, the sense of being a good parent was really filling your kid's schedule. And, you know, there's parents who their, their whole kind of sense of being a good parent was to help their daughter prepare for senior softball season. Right. And then all of a sudden one email, it's over. And the whole softball season is over. And uh, I do think and that- And the daughter's thinking, thanks be to God, yeah. you know. <laughs> I finally have some time to myself for the first time. Yeah, right. But I do think asking parents to really reflect on what does it mean to live a good life for them as a parent, for their Mm -hmm. family, could be a really profound question to to wrestle with. So how could we gather them maybe in online spaces, maybe maybe directly in 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 in, you know face-to-face spaces, but how do we wrestle with the question of what it means to live well? What is a good life? I can't remember the question I asked to I have a parenting circle you know, Presbyterian women's circle that um, years and years ago, and I asked some question and it was, I think it was, what do you want? Your deepest yearning for your young people. 
and somebody turned it back on me and I said, you know, I really want my young people to be content. I want Camden and Violet to be content. And one of the parents said, you mean lazy? (laughs) And I thought, um, no, Um, but that's what they heard because we were in the midst of that um, overscheduling, doing things. And so content and knowing how to sit still and being at peace in the world was not a goal. It was a very different form of the good life than what this, what this other parent thought was the good life. Right. Just get as much out of your time as you can advance, go, you know, um, and to be content became a very different, a very different level of the good. And probably the only way she could ever understand that was to have, to hear stories of contentment and the good of contentment. Right. Not just go, but excel excel yes. that's that's right. there i've, win, I've win, said win, baby. Yeah, yeah i've said one of the best things about whether it's retreats whether it's missions those things that we get kids out of that schedule it's at least one week out of their lives they don't have to excel at anything yeah, they get right. to just be and right. hopefully share those stories and take them in so yeah that's yeah. powerful well andy this has been great and i know we didn't really go through uh your whole book but the conversations have been rich and i think you know, the struggle is real for where we're going in youth ministry. And I think you gave us some actually really good practical tips of how we can do some some things as uh, youth directors and leaders in the church. Um, but I think it's going to be an ongoing struggle for us. Yeah. Um, but it's something we're going to do together. Yeah. That's um, been fun. Thanks for yeah. having me. This has been the Big Ideas in Youth Ministry Podcast. Join us in the Big Ideas and Youth Ministry Facebook group to be part of the ongoing conversation.